Hello and welcome back to the Beer Truth Podcast, where I talk about beer most of the time, but not today. You can read the title of the episode. Today, we are branching out to the world of kombucha, which I know nothing about. It's kind of like beer, but it's also not like beer. You may be asking yourself why, Tom, did you decide to talk to people about kombucha? Well, devoted listener, it's because somebody reached out and asked about having Sam and Luke on the show to talk about Walker Brothers Kombucha. They even sent me some samples, which I consumed. Uh, I dare say I even enjoyed them. And I don't think I've ever had hard kombucha before. Uh, Actually, I know I've never had hard kombucha before. I've only had the stuff you can get at the grocery store. It's like 0.5% or less. Uh, But yeah, they were pretty tasty. It wasn't weird shit. There was like a ginger one and they even do a dry hop one uh, or a hopped one. I think it was with Citra. They also do non-alcoholic kombucha, which I did not have. I think if I was going to drink kombucha, I'd go with the non-alcoholic stuff for health benefits, whatever's. But I think we do get a little bit into the of health benefit side of things Uh, but the point is there's something for everybody Uh, at least I think that's the point I'm not sure wasn't really trying to make a point until I started this sentence and now here we are so either way Sam and Luke can explain this a lot better than me so let's go hear them either either one of you guys um, you know go through your background a little bit uh you know how you got to where you are what what led you down the path of uh opening a beverage company with a brother uh you know that can go really well or that can go really poorly uh so (laughs) what what took you guys down that path yeah uh so i i moved to nashville in 2010 to uh, study music at belmont university um and i'm a drummer so that's what brought me here initially after graduating college i did the music thing for a while and played a bunch of shows and did some audio engineering stuff um and i just found that the lifestyle was a little too tough uh really hard to make money and you know you're up till 2 or 3 a.m every night for like four nights in a row and that adds up pretty quickly um so soon out of college i decided to kind of pivot. And uh, I ended up working at a craft beer bar when I was trying to figure out what I really want to do. Um, So there's this awesome craft beer bar called the Filling Station here in Nashville. Uh, It's a bottle shop. At the time, it was like when growlers were real hip. So it was like the spot to get your growler filled uh, and and to buy like really cool large format bottles or, uh, you know, the, the can selection was phenomenal. So I worked there. And at the time I was working there, I was kind of just putting out feelers to any breweries whenever we did tap takeovers or anything like that um, i had a, a business degree um, so my hope was to start working for a brewery um, and i had taken a real deep dive into craft beer through working at this beer bar so tons of research uh, into different breweries and into brewing styles um, and i was just like infatuated um, so I, I actually got in touch with this one brewer um, Scott, who had opened up a brewery called Honky Tonk Brewing Company here in Nashville. Uh, And he called me three months later after I staffed an event with him and um, asked if I wanted to come on uh, as 
part of spearheading their sales program. Um, and they had just launched six months prior. Uh, so I left my job to go do that. Um, and I worked with Scott over at Honky Tonk Brewing for two years, uh, leading their sales program. Um, and we were doing self-distribution at the time and actually sold that footprint to a wholesaler. Uh, and when that happened, I migrated and moved over to the wholesaler as a portfolio manager in their uh, craft sector. Um, so I was leading a, a handful of brands, uh, sales efforts, um, and working as a portfolio manager. Um, and through that experience, I had just really fallen in love with beer and the way that it, I always think of uh, craft beer and the whole movement as, as a hub with a bunch of different spokes coming off of it. Uh, and I think that craft beer is the hub of everything I loved. It was like um, just a creative catalyst which, which connected uh, people around a drink to build community. Uh, it was a hub that was um, spearheading sustainable efforts and packaging and using local ingredients to uh, and pushing like sustainable farming practices. Um, craft breweries are all about music and they actually pay musicians decently to perform at breweries. I mean, it is literally just everything I loved all in one place. Um, so that's kind of what brought me into beer. Uh, and then Luke moved to I, Nashville. I can, I can touch on, yeah, how our paths like intersected because it yeah. wasn't, we both, I think have like a, you know, entrepreneurial, uh, I don't know, I guess just we're wired that way a bit. So I think that that piece of the puzzle that we might be running our own business isn't uh, too surprising, but we didn't intend to work together off the bat. So I also actually wanted to be a musician originally and uh, was studying songwriting and, and philosophy back when I was in college. And uh, as a songwriter, I um, started having a lot of issues with my voice um, where it was just bothering me to sing. Um, and finally, after like doing some voice uh, therapy and starting taking some like prescription drugs for it, not seeing much progress, I uh, came across like an online forum about apple cider vinegar, um, like taking tonics of that basically, which then overlapped with kombucha. And um, our aunt was brewing kombucha at the time too. Uh, and so basically, just realized how powerful that was in terms of alleviating my symptoms. It was kind of mind blowing. So I ended up changing my diet around a lot too after that and just noticing the power of like food and beverage um, and the impact it can have on your life. So that kind of veered me off of the music path as well, just because my mind was blown. I was like, dang, I want to start working as a cook somewhere and um, so after school, I kind of dove into food more so, moved to Nashville and was working as a part-time uh, cook at a couple different restaurants. And then on the side, I had uh, asked my aunt if I could have a SCOBY to start brewing kombucha just because Sam and I were both uh, at that point realizing that beer in particular was uh, had kind of not the best effect on our uh, digestion and, and uh so at the end of the night, it was always nice to have a kombucha, like homemade kombucha at home, just to settle the, the stomach or, or the following day also. Um, and then uh, at some point during, so we moved in together, which also was not really that planned. I just didn't 
have a clear game plan at that point uh, and was making literally no money, but had, had some good flexibility. Um, so I was just messing around brewing kombucha at home and Sam was helping me out. And then one day it kind of crossed my mind. Oh man, I wonder if I could brew a alcoholic kombucha. So something that would be more comparable to like a wild sour beer um, and be at a sessionable ABV, um, but have kind of a, notably softer or more neutral uh effect on on the gut um and so started dabbling with that and then once we had something that that tasted decent it was kind of like whoa this actually might be a really good idea um and and we realized that given um given sam's background in beer and then at the time i had actually incidentally uh gotten a job offer from GT's kombucha, which is like the largest kombucha company, uh, in the United States, um, as a Tennessee sales rep. So we kind of just realized, dang, like our paths have kind of led us to a perfect setup to start a kombucha company and a, particularly an alcoholic kombucha company. Cause at the time we thought of that, we didn't really, we hadn't heard of that category. Um, but little did we know it was, it was stewing on the West coast for sure. Um, but in our area in the Southeast, it was just kind of non-existent. So that's how, okay. that's how, uh, yeah, that was kind of the setup to it all. Okay. So what is, can you, cause I don't know basically anything about kombucha. I mean, I know, I don't even, I don't, I can never remember what SCOBY stands for. Um, so can you explain uh, basically what kombucha is? Cause I don't know if anyone listening i mean i've never done a kombucha show before so can yeah. you start with you know explaining what kombucha is um you've mentioned a little bit of the the kind of health effects that it can have um yep. the difference between uh non-alcoholic kombucha and then the the what you guys call high gravity the five percent stuff um yep. and then i kind of want to go a little bit down more down the the kind of process and production yeah, for sure. lane. Yeah, so I, I lead our um, production team, so I can definitely dive into that world. So SCOBY is an acronym that stands for uh, Symbiotic Culture of Bacteria and Yeast. Um, and so honestly, an easy way to think about it for beer people is just say mixed culture. You know, it's uh, so kombucha is a mixed culture ferment where the fermentable is cane sugar and tea rather than malt. Um, and the other main difference is there's no, basically in the heat that you're steeping that tea at, technically it's still a raw or a, a living product because there's not really a pasteurization step. So um, the main uh, like safety mechanism in brewing it is really the inoculation with the SCOBY, the, the mixed culture. Um, some people call it the mother or starter liquid, but it's really all the same stuff. It's just your like house culture of yeast and bacteria. Um, and in the case of kombucha, um, that is a very acidic culture because unlike beer, acetic acid is, uh, is our friend. So we, uh, we have acetic acid and Britannomyces in everything that we make. So um, some people kind of view kombucha brewers like the plague, you know, 
um, if they're, they want to stay super clean. Um, we, do a lot of, we do a lot of business with a lot of uh, brewery tap rooms, but there's some breweries that are <laughs> clean beer centric. They're like, they're like, don't even, don't even come in here. <laughs> Stay away. <laughs> that kombucha, that can of kombucha anywhere close. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's pretty funny. Yeah. But um, I, from a production standpoint, it's really, kombucha is a really cool process. And I think especially given our like background interest in beer, um, we really appreciate uh, kind of trying to remain purist in the kombucha world. So um kombucha is traditionally open fermented and um we have grown our culture so that we're continuing to do open ferments right now uh most of our fermenters are 40 barrels and so some pretty big open ferments cranking and um in the same way that i would say you can taste the difference with like an open fermented lager um it's it's a tangible uh tangibly different experience um but that open fermentation basically is just key for um, feeding both the yeast and the, especially the bacteria. Um, and so when people say SCOBY, oftentimes they're thinking of uh, the like, have you ever seen a SCOBY out of curiosity? Uh, I think so. It looks, it's kind of like this like, like rubbery. Snotty. Yeah, snotty. yeah. So <laughs> it'll be like, uh, usually like a disc-like, like pancake-like um cellulose uh yeah structure that forms on top of uh each brew and uh that is just this byproduct of the bacteria and the yeast and so the snottiness is usually like strands of bacteria that are that are coated in strands of yeast as well just like dangling off of this uh so it's very uh alien looking but uh but pretty cool but that, most people, when they say, oh, I want to get into kombucha, uh, say, oh, I need a SCOBY to brew. And I think what we often try to iterate to, to people is a SCOBY is really uh, just that like, culture itself, which is present in the liquid. So really, in order to brew kombucha, you need uh, just starter liquid, which is also SCOBY the disc that forms on top is a byproduct. So if you brew kombucha, you'll, you'll get that, but you don't necessarily need that to brew it. Um, okay. So at what point, at what point does it, do you differentiate between alcoholic and non-alcoholic? Is the, is alcohol another byproduct of, I'm guessing of that fermentation? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So fermentation wise, what it looks like in comparison to beers, basically we have a kettle as well. But our kettle, we're just, it's essentially a huge tea kettle. So we're getting our target temp in there and then steeping a lot of loose leaf tea. Uh, we use a blend of three different Chinese teas and, and most of our core items. Um, and the blend is just black, green, and then jasmine because we like the flavor of jasmine. And blending between different types of tea will basically make more nutrients available for uh, the yeast and bacteria. Um, and we always recommend using organic tea just cause it won't, uh, have any sort of natural flavors or oils in it. Cause that the culture will not do well with that. Um, but once you've steeped your tea, uh, essentially you're, you're sweetening it with 
uh, cane sugar. That's how kombucha is traditionally made. So it's like you're ma- making a huge batch of sweet tea, cooling it down, and then inoculating it with at least 10% of whatever volume you're brewing with the starter liquid. And that's that's your yeast and bacteria pitch at the same time. And um, initially, when we launched, the, we weren't trying to launch a non-alcoholic kombucha company. Um, all we were focusing on is hard kombucha or high gravity kombucha as we call it because we think it it just sounds better um but our our hope was just to launch with this high gravity kombucha brand and at the time uh non-alcoholic kombucha was like the the process was a byproduct of how to get to the alcoholic kombucha but now we have two totally separate brewing processes um so luke just explained the non-alcoholic brewing process and then kind of in in order up um all we're doing is adding more organic cane sugar and then co-pitching yeast in addition to the, you know, spontaneously occurring yeast that's in the culture. Okay. Yeah. And this is where it gets like, so the non-alcoholic kombucha, that ferment does produce alcohol, but because the yeast in there are just really low attenuating, mostly wild yeast, so slow moving and it's an open ferment. It's kind of like if you had a bottle of wine that you just left open, uh, and the acetic acid in there will basically consume the alcohol that's being produced. So that's why kombucha is inherently like a considered a non-alcoholic drink, just because the levels of alcohol will, will stay pretty low as long as there's enough air exposure, because um, the bacteria will consume alcohol. So with the alcohol in kombucha, we are basically trying to generate enough alcohol uh, before that uh, bacteria starts to consume it and so yeah we've gotten creative and and definitely inspired by we we've tried to keep our influence more so beer uh just because that's kind of where our roots are and so um a fun approach that we now use is um brewing with kvike yeast um to get to get that added alcohol content in our high gravity kombucha and so we, we ferment really hot um and we 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 have been sticklers about wanting to ferment everything open uh just because that feels uh really important to us for that's part of the you know traditional kombucha process and that allows room for subtle uh differences in each batch just uh kind of based on airflow um but yeah so that's the main differences between our uh two brews is basically just the addition of that uh bike yeast pitch and added sugar higher temperature um and then after we have finished our ferments we do a fair amount of blending as well um just for consistency and then um blending also serves us well so that we can uh we basically have huge blending tanks and it's just a good method of storage so we have liquid on hand that's that's ready to go uh, so if we get uh, kind of larger orders on deck or more demand than we anticipated, we don't have to wait on a full brew cycle. Um, and that, that Kvike yeast is propagated on sorghum instead of barley. So it is gluten-free as well. Um, okay. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah we work with a cause... yeast lab here. Okay. I was going to ask about the Kvike because, I mean, that obviously had its day in craft beer, but I feel like that's another one of the trends that, you know, got to, you know, it's not American 
America, found it, you know, did everything imaginable with it. And I don't see bike beers anymore. Like, you, yeah. you know, you did two or three years ago, maybe three years ago. And did you guys, did that idea come from beer finding that and like the, the Norwegian, you know, the traditional stuff, or was that just another yeah. alternative for you? I, uh, I sure we from, were, like, from, from beer for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's how we were initially familiar with it and knew it was a super resilient strain that could ferment at a high temperature and was uh, in like highly attenuating. Um, so I think that all came from seeing it used and it have its heyday in, in the beer in the beer scene for sure um, yeah and, and prior to messing with that we were using mostly wine yeast uh usually champagne yeast just because it's so aggressive um but it, it definitely um it brings across a very different mouthfeel and and flavor and so uh we just like the way that bike yeast plays it's a little more um just full-bodied because of kind of like some of the esters that you get and um especially fermenting hot you just get pretty cool um tropical like flavors that i think really complement our ferments well okay is that also you said using aggressive yeast is that part of the like kind of trying to beat the clock on the acetic yes. acid yeah okay. yeah so it's 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 really Kombucha is a strange uh, game because, or especially alcoholic kombucha, just because the environment that you're uh, basically putting yeast into is very unfriendly. So unlike beer where you have these natural nutrients that are uh, in your malts um, and available in your wort, uh, sweet tea on its own, uh, there's organic nitrogen from the tea. Um but there's not much else going on. And then in, term, in terms of like a starting pH to our ferments, they're usually starting right around four and they'll usually finish up right around three. Uh, so it's already like inherently an acidic and kind of nutrient lacking environment. So you kind of got to play a lot of games to keep your yeast. To basically have happy yeast up front and then over time, that acidity will just um, make the environment worse and worse for the ferment, which um, thankfully flavor-wise plays out just fine. So it, it is, um, it's interesting because unlike beer where you're, you're hitting your terminal with both our uh, non-alc and alcoholic products, um, our terminal gravity is really affiliated with a certain pH, uh, pretty pretty consistently so um more so than just like trying to crank to a certain gravity um independent of that so okay yeah, the if, that, of if that makes sense it's <laughs> kombucha is a dance between yeast and bacteria so that's why i say like gravity and ph is really you're you're basically watching these two curves at the same time and you have an ideal curve for uh or ideal like um coordination between those two which which okay. led to a lot of like very stressful installed <laughs> ferments when we were getting off the ground oh uh, yeah in the product development phase and we still deal with like with ferments yeah, stalling up because of that. it's really hard to hone in on that balance it's super delicate 
Um, so yeah, I think I think it is a definitely a dance, um, but it can be a, a stressful one to <laughs> to keep in balance. Yeah. Yeah. So what, how it's you... a cool constraint though, because like it's part of the reason for the difficulty is that the product's alive, which is just like anytime you remember that is like whoa, this is pretty cool. Um, and in that sense, I I would say that uh, kombucha brewing is in a in a certain way better compared to like gardening than it is to certain other types of brewing, um, just because you're you're literally guiding this culture the whole time. Uh, you're working with it, but you don't ultimately have control because the culture is constantly changing too. So uh, it's a listening process for sure. So when something's, you know, not going, your ferment's not going quite the way you want, is it like, can you just uh, like pitch more yeast if you need some more activity or more nutrients or how do you, mm -hmm. how do you do that guiding? Yeah, it, it kind of depends on the, the reason for the stall out. But we definitely up front, just in coming up with a recipe that was uh, consistent, we had to figure out ways to uh, troubleshoot a fair amount. So like there's the classic yeast starter approach, which does work for us of just kind of make a, a really uh, uh, aggressive yeast starter. And when it's fermenting, uh, pitch it right in. And so if you're struggling to hit your target gravity, that that'll definitely help, but it's still difficult because you're in a super acidic environment. Um, and so there are things like, um, potassium bicarbonate, which is often used in like wine making, uh, to basically like, uh, stabilize at, uh, or if a wine is kind of more acidic than someone wants, um, you can boost pH a little bit. So that can give you a little wiggle room and then yeah, using plenty of yeast nutrient up front is vital for sure. Um, and having an appropriate amount of dissolved oxygen in the liquid. Um, and for non-out ferments, it's, it's really interesting because it's, it's quite the opposite of beer where, um, you know, beer brewing, you, you want your right amount of oxygen pre-fermentation and then you basically just want to avoid oxygen at all costs. Um, with non-out kombucha, you actually, especially big batch, you, you want to be consistently um, stirring the pot, essentially, just getting oxygen uh, well mixed throughout that liquid so that um, you're keeping your, your culture happy because oxygen is just this consistent nutrient in there. Um, and there's no, there aren't actually like um, off flavors like you know, diacetyl or, or things like that, that you're going to get as a consequence with, with non-alcoholic kombucha. Okay. But the alcoholic one, it's, it's uh, once you're a certain way is into fermentation, you do not want to touch it with oxygen. Otherwise it, it's a lot like beer in that sense where you will, you'll get plenty of off flavors. Okay. So speaking on ingredients, um, I was just looking at uh, some of the, the cans that you guys sent me. So I, I don't think I've ever had, hard kombucha so thank you for sending uh so i could see what that's like yeah. um, but everything is almost everything is organic and like certified um I don't, I don't know if you can certify yeast as organic but obviously you guys put some time and thought into your ingredients and and what goes into it um and i'm drinking the one right now that's actually 
also has citra hops. Um, so for for the ingredients other than uh, you know the the scoby and water, uh, what I mean the there's the the tea, black tea, green tea, jasmine tea, cane sugar, all organic. Um, when you use other flavors, like there was a uh, ginger something and ginger or just ginger ginger um, with a pineapple and turmeric okay mm -hmm. um but i mean you guys have to source you know it's not always gonna i'm sure come from the same place how do you go about sourcing your ingredients making sure that they're you know what you want that they're the quality that you want to yeah. work with and pass on to a consumer um how how do you go about doing that when we, well, when we first started, we had a uh, <laughs> very manual juicer and we would literally just go purchase organic fruits and juice well, it through, through a distributor. So through, through a distributor. Not, like at the, not at the grocery store thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we'd have all like a pallet of organic fruit show up uh, at our brewery and Luke and I and uh, we had one other employee at the time. We would literally process everything in house pretty much give everything like a white vinegar bath to sanitize and then process on this juicer and it would take like no <laughs> lie like six hours to get enough juice to do uh, one like like five barrel 60, like one like one five barrel batch of kombucha so it was it was for one very, flavor yeah so yeah, for, for one for one skew <laughs> and we have like seven skews so it was a full-time <laughs> job in itself. Uh, so we quickly, uh, as quickly as possible, we scaled out of that. And um, luckily we have a, uh, we've done some collaborations on the non-alcoholic side with a juice bar here in Nashville called the Urban Juicer. Um, and they allowed us to use their um, juicer at their facility, uh, which could do much more volume uh, and required a lot less labor. So that was like, the tier level to get up to, uh, <laughs> to us not having to juice on this, this juicer where it took hours to get a gallon of juice. Um, <laughs> and from there, Luke has done a really good job at um, sourcing partnerships with uh, wholesalers that focus on organic fruits and veggies uh, and herbs and, or, or, or going directly from the source. I, th I think being, being yeah. I think that those guys. Yeah, really as often as possible. And part of this is just for, um, to be cost effective. But if you do your research, a lot of times you can find uh, rather than going through like a um, produce or juice uh, distributor, you can you can find whoever is actually uh, um, juicing the product, like originally the produce. Um, so a couple of examples of that we've now partnered with a uh, company in Vermont called A Drop of Joy that has a direct relationship with um, to obtain Peruvian ginger juice. And that's juice that is, it's basically ginger harvested in Peru, uh, juiced and frozen same day. So it's just like fresh as the fresh organic ginger juice. Um, and so that's way higher quality than if we were to uh, order organic ginger through a distributor and then juice it ourselves actually just because of distribution chain and timing and um 
So we're, we're doing a lot of things like that where we're trying to get the highest quality um, frozen juices now instead. And that's, it's changed our processes, but it's, it's really helpful. And we definitely notice an impact on the flavor. Like another example is we work with a um, family owned uh, business uh, farm in California that um, grows organic watermelon and organic honeydew. Um, and those juices just are so incredibly fresh. Um, so it's really helpful when we're, some of the items that we're using are not, we can't get them year round uh, locally also. Because our goal in time, I think, is to uh, follow more of um, kind of these larger sour beer producers, like, say, an Allagash, um, how they are contracting with local farms to basically say, hey, if you can grow this many blueberries, we will purchase all of them. And so that's what we're really hoping to start doing in Tennessee. Um, it's difficult because the way that organic uh, certifications work. It's a fairly expensive certification. So a lot of farms that are growing organically don't actually have that certification, even though they would meet all the criteria. So it's definitely been a lesson in terms of just like, uh, food systems and distribution. And, um, so, some of the unfortunate sides of that, I would say it's just, uh, a lot of things can steer you away from uh, working locally or a lot of things are roadblocks to that. So well, scalability, um, scalability is a tough roadblock to that. Cause we want to scale and we want to grow. Um, but it's hard to find, uh, local partners sometimes that have the yields that we need, even if we're only using mm -hmm. two to 4% juice in our flavors, uh, that, that adds up pretty quickly. Uh, and we need yep. a year round. Um, which is why a company like Van Groningen and, they're, they're like right outside of Yosemite Valley and they have organic watermelons and honeydews and they, you know, they, they process that all year and they juice the watermelons and honeydews whole. So you still have like that rind in there as well, which showcases in the watermelon lime flavor, the pink can, if you dive into that one. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's, it's, they're fully scaled up and it's really easy. So I, I think we're, we're hoping to open a tap room next spring. We're moving into a new facility right now. And ideally we want to have like a pilot program that's really featuring uh, a lot of local purveyors and local growers here in our region and specifically in Tennessee. Um, and I think that'll be kind of a good uh, way to test out those relationships and then worry about scaling from there. But we yep. definitely always want to take it closer to home whenever that's a possibility. And for the time being, go, oh, go ahead. I was just going to ask when you, when you have places that are, you know, maybe a, a family that you want to work with, but they don't meet that scale. Can you kind of like mix and match or, or do you, I mean, which would I'm sure make it harder with consistency, but can you mix and match, uh, you know, to, to get enough ingredients together or, or does it really need to be like all, all or nothing when it comes to, you know, having it available? We, uh, we can mix and match a bit. I think the way that we have chosen to uh, handle that usually is basically by, this is also beer inspired for sure, but having seasonal like limited releases. And for those, uh, since it's not, we can produce as much as we'd like, you know? 
so then we can basically see okay how many local strawberries can we get our hands on you know mm -hmm. how many pounds and then we can formulate recipes around that um and so those releases for us are really exciting just um a recent one that we did was yeah with a uh, local farm um using their strawberries and then a, a local coffee roaster um using one of their ethiopian roasts and that was a non-alcoholic brew that was actually inspired by um a uh, berliner vice that i think mckeller used to brew back in the day it's like Lush. coffee ra Thank raspberry you. Yeah. Oh, the raspberry yeah. coffee. Yeah. 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 And so, yeah, the way we play it, we'll just steep the coffee beans whole um, just overnight and it adds this awesome kind of accent. But so those seasonal releases that that gives us a great opportunity to basically not uh, to basically just be able to, to set the uh, parameters ourselves so that we can work more locally. And I think that's a, a good question because it's historically we've tried to work with like just one farm to source the strawberries. Um, and we like to do that so we can showcase that farm on our can. So we'll like put their logo on the can and be like in collaboration with this farm so we can highlight local growers uh, and hopefully give them some some good PR and uh, marketing potential out in, out in the market on the shelves. So um, it gets a little harder to showcase our partners if there's just a, if it's like we say we're getting organic blueberries and there's uh, 10 farms involved, it gets harder to showcase that and to promote on their behalf um, on our end. So, Yeah. Do you have to do deal with label approval through TTB the way that breweries do? Yeah. Okay. We don't have colas though, but we do have to deal with TTB label approval. Okay. Um, so the, this, the one that I'm drinking, the Citra, um, made me think, because you... Luke, I think earlier you said, uh, yeah, I mean, you're steeping the tea, but you're not boiling it. It's still essentially a, a live product. Like that made me think of like raw ale, which kind of, yes. again, goes yeah. back to like the Scandinavian stuff where yes, a lot of it's raw. Exactly. Um, yeah, I'm glad you draw that connection because, yeah, it's just cool to overlap. Yeah, and I, but I was thinking, you know, a lot of, you know, <laughs> maybe not anymore, as much uh, with the the trend of low bitterness stuff, um, where it's people are doing less uh, or even no um, uh, kettle hopping, but instead some places are you know doing beers with only uh, only dry hopping or only uh, post fermentation. Uh, so how much does that uh, the the effect of not having a boil? Are you getting, does that like accentuate the hops more in, in that particular one? Um, is it, do you just basically just dry hop and throw the hops in? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We, so every, actually everything that we make, we, um, for a couple reasons, flavor cold side. Um, so we do dry hop, but it's a cold steep of those hops, which is kind of odd in, in the beer world for sure. Um, but, uh, we do that for a couple of reasons. Um, for one, since the kombucha is alive, um, we'll generate more alcohol, uh, if we're not, if we're flavoring warm, cause we'll just get another fermentation going. Um, so that's more of an issue for the non-alcoholic product. Um, 
where we really don't want to be generating more alcohol. Um, but we also really like the way that that cold flavor extraction works. Um, and because all of our finished um, liquid prior to a flavoring step is right around that, like between three and three, two uh, pH, it's just a great kind of like acidity for extracting flavor without having to use actually all that much uh, of the ingredient in comparison to to what most beer brewers are used to. Okay. And then uh, another thing I was thinking about, um, carbonation, what is that like for you guys? Are you guys carbonating like similar levels to beer or is it all natural carbonated or is it, are you even doing like spunding or how do you, what does that look yeah. like for kombucha? We haven't gotten any spunding, but uh, we, um, there is some natural effervescence just from the primary ferment for sure. Um, but we definitely supplement and force carb. Um, and so in, it is pretty comparable to beer. Sometimes we go a little more aggressive little than, than some beer. Yeah. Just cause we don't have the same body. Uh, so the CO2 is kind of key to, to give more mouthfeel. So we'll usually be carving around two six or two seven, um, okay. and we carb our alcoholic product usually a little more than the non-alcoholic. The kombucha category is pretty crafty. I mean, most other kombucha brewers, especially on the non-alcoholic side, are bottle conditioning all of their products. Um, but something we we're really trying to solve for is a lack of consistency there. Uh, so we, we decided to force carbonate instead just so we could provide a consistent product to our consumer um, by consistently carbonating to, you know, similar volumes batch after batch uh, instead of trying to temperature control everything in can condition. Um, but I think we both agree that can conditioning and bottle conditioning is much cooler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In a perfect world, uh, yeah, we would want to condition all our products for like a year before anyone drinks them just because... Yeah. They do age really well. It's pretty cool. Um, in part because of that acidity, it's just like, um, yeah, they age great. Um, but we we actually our date codes don't. Uh, we have them expire before a year, just to be conservative in that way. But mm. it's a an insider hack. We like to drink them after that for sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Uh, for the the large part, very different uh, than beer. Or it's, yes, the yeah. date code is like sometimes the date code is even it's like all right if it's you know the bigger the brewery often you know maybe it's a six month date code or or they put it in like Julian calendar or whatever so you can't ever figure out what when that beer was actually made. Uh, uh, I can't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some of these uh, like yeah, double well, I mean, up crazy IPAs with like a sixty day code on it. It's so intense. <laughs> uh, uh, the kombucha is fun though, because you could like we sell our, our kombucha for personal consumption, but mm -hmm. you sell it cold. So it's kind of just like a can that's been sitting at the back of your fridge for like a year or two. Uh, and it still tastes great, but it's just interesting having it not be a part of our, our beer sellers and just like a little stockpile in our in our fridges that are uh, set aside for cellaring purposes. Yeah. Yeah. The, the joke with beer is always, you know, like finding that missing can that's in the back of the fridge that has been there for way too long and uh yeah definitely a definitely an opposite kind of perspective yeah. when you're 
yes. doing that on accident or doing it very intentionally. Yeah. Um, well, do you guys have to, I mean, on the can it says, uh, let's say, keep refrigerated, do not shake, um, open slowly. So again, this is, you know, I mean, if you're shaking your beer before you're opening it, that's <laughs> not going to go well. But um, a lot of, you know, a lot of people uh, in, you know, brewers insist that their beers kept cold chain the whole way. And it's not really any brewer's dream to, to see their stuff stored, you know, room temperature on the shelf. Uh, because yep. that's obviously uh, not the ideal conditions. Um, but this being an unpasteurized product, there's no boil, you know, there's uh, a lot of differences in the production. Um, do you have to worry about getting referments in the can uh, or worry about warm storage or any of that stuff? Definitely. I, and I think that's kind of an inhibitor for us sometimes. I mean, we're, we're so focused on our quality control and doing it with what we think is the right way, which is keeping our product unpasteurized and being true to the tradition of kombucha being a living, a living product. Um, but it is really tough because it makes it harder on the cold chain side because everything needs to be cold chain. I mean, we, we ship all of our product. We're distributed in eight states now and we ship all of our product on LTL trucks because we've had some issue finding reefer uh, LTL, especially in the, the current state of the economy. Um, so we ship everything dry LTL and we use a company called Pallet Parka, which is just uh, pallet insulation. And we insulate every single pallet. We send out the door. Uh, it has a tote bag that is included when we wrap the skid and a return label. And when it hits our, our wholesaler, they repalletize the product. It goes right into their keg coolers. And then they send us the tote bag back with all the elements of the pallet parker to reuse on our next PO. Um, so that's kind of the workaround we figured out. Um, so all of our product is housed in all of our wholesalers keg coolers to keep it cold all the time. So it's generally between 36 and 42 degrees. Um, and then when it, when it leaves a door, uh, we do have, we do run some of our product on day trucks that are not reefer. Um, but about 90, probably about 70% of the trucks our reefer. Um, and when it's not a reefer truck, it just needs to land in a cooler at the, at the retailer and it's going to be fine. So if, as long as it's leaving a cooler and ending up in a cooler at retail, it's all good. But if it's being, um, if it's landing on a dry shelf at a retailer, they're, they're you know, the product is very much alive and there's residual yeah. in there. Yeah. There's, uh, there's a time frame. It's going to lead to some re-fermentation and we've had, you know, we've had cans explode at retailers before we've had, uh, distributor partners who forgot to put a skid into the cooler and put it out with the rest of their package in their warehouse and you know had 30 cases explode and that that happened to us last week so it's always something always something we're trying to stay on top of and it is creating more work for ourselves uh, for ourselves for sure but we definitely stand behind uh the reasons that we're, we're choosing not to pasteurize so okay uh totally different topic that I seem to hear a lot. Um, Sam, you mentioned earlier uh, playing drums. Uh, Luke, you were talking about singing. So both of you guys, obviously, uh, in music, and, and you mentioned that very early on. Uh, in talking to brewers, and I often see that whether it's music or 
uh, you know, different creative expressions like that, uh, that, that tend to have a, at least some kind of impact in, you know, whether it's recipe design or, or labels or artwork or anything like that, does, does your music backgrounds, uh, influence your ingredients or your thought process or anything, uh, that translates to your product? That's a, that's a great question. That's a good, yeah. No one's ever asked that before. Uh, I, I would say I mean, on the, or go ahead, Sam. I, I was just going to say on the, on the mindset itself of the way that we've uh, just launched the company and the way that we try to continue to grow it. I feel like we both come from the musician mindset. And for me, being a musician was just like constant hustle, um, constant hustle and not complaining and being like, this is, I'm working to play music because I love doing it. Um, and I think that's something that we've tried to bring to this company is just like the willingness to out hustle and the willingness to uh, work really hard at creating a network and relationships and fostering those relationships. And music is such a relational industry, uh, whether it's about the band or about your the people who are listening. Um, and I think we've taken that mentality of the relationship between the listener and the musician and tried to um, bridge that gap into the relationship between the person drinking our product and uh, us making it, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I would say agree, on my end. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think um, I definitely do feel a bit of overlap between like uh, kind of a approach to songwriting and approach to um i would say fermentation like recipe development um more so on the uh yeah fermentation side the flavoring side as well but i think um i know as as a songwriter a lot of times like you are or the way that i approach it is like you begin playing and, and you're listening for something to strike your strike your ear strike your fancy and then you're kind of seeking out that sound you know you're trying to uh uncover it so it's not like you're like uh just going and making up something from scratch it, it really is this uh kind of more like receiving process and i would say that's how our product has evolved over time too is just um a lot of trial and error and uh paying attention to what we like and then in the same way that a musician or a band kind of finds their sound or their niche. I think that's how we've been approaching this project is like, what is, what is unique about our kombucha? What, what is our flavor profile? How do we want to approach that? And so our non-alcoholic kombucha, I think is a cool example just because we intentionally brew it uh, less acidic than most producers. And um we just really like that. We, we say we are trying to be like the lager beer of uh, non-alcoholic kombucha. Uh, so just like crisp, clean, kind of tea forward. Um, and yeah, that's been cool. It's it, in the same way that, um, yeah, a musician decides their niche. That's That's been a good example of that. Okay. Uh, well, we're closing in on an hour here, but uh, I was going to ask about um is it like do you guys have a tap room uh it sounds like uh sam i think you said you were working on opening a tap yeah, room yeah and i see your address on the can is a p.o box so i'm guessing 
yeah. <laughs> There's not a place to visit right now. There's not. So right now, for for the past three years, we've just been uh, a manufacturing company. So we're all we're, we're a production brewery, um, and we're actually in the process of moving to a upscaled facility. Um, we're just finishing the build out on the production facility, and we'll be making that move next month. And that's been a project that we've been working on for a year. So uh, we're super excited to make that move. Uh, and part of this new production facility is going to be allocated to be a tap room. Um, so our hope is to have that tap room off the ground by spring of 2023. Okay. Is it going to be a, a just your product? Or are you guys going to have like wine and beer and cider and a kitchen? And where are you going with it all? So we, we have, like I said earlier, we work with a ton of different breweries who have been generous enough um, to sell our product in their tap rooms as either a gluten-free alcoholic option or like a craft NA option. Um, so we've made a, a plan to have rotating beer taps that highlight the breweries that sell our product so we can give back to them. Um, so that's our process on our, on, our, on our beer program at the tap room. Um, ciders are maybe, I feel like kombucha and cider um are similar enough that what we'll see it depends on the, the cider maker um and we'll also we're planning to have some uh some package as well uh probably wine um and on the food front we're going to have a little warming kitchen uh so we could host pop-ups and like chef pop-ups um and then we're also going to have space for uh for a food truck so we're going to have like a rotating food truck schedule as well okay cool um well yeah, we're uh, we're about an hour, and I've learned a lot about kombucha. Um, how you guys have been there down in Nashville for? You said the company's three years old. Yeah, we turned three in October. Okay, have you guys been there long enough to trade your Pats jerseys for cowboy hats, or? Still... <laughs> uh... I, I still wear a socks hat. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's, not, that's not the quite right yet, answer. But I, yeah. yeah. Our skin is thinned a bit. I'll say that. Uh, Get I cold really easily. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel a little bit of shame going home in the winter sometimes. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, right, no well, cowboy uh, hat. None of that. No. Okay. Yeah. Um, Actually, Luke, you have a cowboy hat, don't you? Uh, it's not exactly a cowboy hat. It's... <laughs> yeah. But it might be a gateway to a cowboy hat. So I need to be careful. <laughs> Yeah, it's a slippery slope. Yeah, yeah, man. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I'm out of questions. Uh, thanks, guys, for taking the time. This was very educational and definitely uh, didn't know anything about kombucha. So it's a, a very, I think a lot of people are going to find it interesting. Walker Brothers Kombucha. Thanks to Sam and Luke for joining me via Zoom. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I kind of like the samples that they sent. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to become a kombucha drinker, but uh, yeah, they were surprisingly tasty. I was, I have opened my mind. Uh, I believe Walker Brothers is in eight states right now, and they're working on more, maybe even more by the time... I finish publishing this or when you listen to it or I don't know but if you're on the east coast uh, you might be able to find it they're based in Nashville so for all the Tennessee fans of the show 
which I think is approximately zero, uh, you can check out Walker Brothers. Uh, they are opening up a new space that they talked about. Um, and yeah, kombucha, check. Next up is cider, I guess, but probably not. Uh, thanks for listening. I appreciate your undying devotion. Thanks to the Hopped Up Network for helping spread the good word. Uh, you can find out more there at hoppedupnetwork.com. Now you can go do all the subscribing things and social media following things. Uh, you can tell your friends about the show, Podcast. You can repost my hilarious memes. I don't know. I don't know how to do this marketing stuff. Uh, new episode next week or maybe later this week. I know I always say that. It's coming soon, but I got a lot of interviews stacked up need to get published. So some Zooms, some in person, all awesome. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.